Welcome to a special 58th New York Film Festival edition of the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Today, NYFF director Eugene Hernandez is joined by director Pedro Almodovar and actor Tilda Swinton to discuss their new short film, The Human Voice. In the film, Swinton swallows up the screen as a woman traumatized by the end of a relationship. An impeccably designed yet combustible adaptation of Jean Cocteau's 1930 play, The Human Voice. It marks the Spanish director's English language debut. To learn more about NYC Drive-In and nationwide virtual tickets for NYFF, visit filmlink.org. Let's go to the conversation now. Thank you to Film at Lincoln Center members for helping to make the Film at Lincoln Center podcast possible and for playing such a vital role in all we do. Memberships start at just $85 and offer discounted tickets year-round, including at the 50th New York Film Festival, early purchasing periods, exclusive invitations to member events and film clubs, and much more. If you're interested in supporting Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org members today. Pedro and Tilda, thank you for for logging on from from uh, from your home cities and uh, spending some time with us at the New York Film Festival. Of course, I'm I'm heartbroken that we can't be together on a stage, but at the same time, uh, I'm glad that we can get together virtually because I think it's bringing it certainly brings me um, a lot of comfort and joy that uh, that we can be together in this way. Mm-hmm. And, and I know it's uh, been special for us to be able to bring the festival to an audience this year. So just first of all, thank you for taking the time and sharing this movie with us. And thank you, Eugene, and everyone at the New York Film Festival for rocking on. And, uh, and we are so thrilled. We just were told that we're in a drive-in tonight. So we're particularly psyched to be, to be talking to people in their cars. Yeah. I love the idea of being in a drive-in. Uh, I think this is the first screening of one of my movies in a drive-in. <laughs> so I can imagine just the people yeah. in the yeah. cars. And this is something completely new. Yeah. And, what is in, and also, I mean, the fact that they have a big screen, mm. I think this is also very important. And at the opener, is the more, the more uh, a wealthy way <laughs> to mm-hmm. see a movie in this, in this moment, in this yeah. Yeah. condition of the pandemic. Yeah. And then anyway, I would, like, I would like to say that here in this place where you see me, I wrote my last 10 movies here in this table, and the, and also in the same table, and also the chair was part of the decoration of Pain and Glory. Oh, very good. <laughs> Where, see, so, you know, even though, um, Pedro, you talked about the New York Film Festival being a home for you in New York, in fact, uh, we have an even more intimate connection to you uh, through virtual because we can be in your home, you're in your space, in your creative space. So, I don't know, I think it brings, um, it brings us a, an even more, you know, a kind of more intimate uh, connection to to you as an artist and and to each of you uh, as collaborators to to be in a more um, more intimate space together. So thank you for for sharing the space with us today. You. you know, I have to say, I was thinking about this in advance of our conversation, and and there was something about that that photo. There was a first photo that that you all that that, that you shared, uh, and it's a photo of the two of you on the set uh, while you're filming, and it was just a few weeks ago, uh, the Human Voice. There was something about that photo, and and I and I saw it on social media 
um, everyone should follow uh, Pedro's um, Instagram. Um, I saw it on social media, Pedro and Tilda, and I don't know, there was something about um, the comfort that that photo brought me. And I saw that happen over the, over the first couple of days, the photo was shared wildly on social media. Oh. Um, and I think it just, it, it sent a sort of a, a, a flare up and said that actually, despite everything going on and all the struggles uh, happening in our world, cinema is still being created, being imagined and, and will be coming soon. New movies will be coming soon. So, so I just wanted to start by saying thank you for that. And I, I don't know if you, you, you recognized how important that one image was. As a no, sign. I don't. I know. I don't know. I'm very glad. I don't, I'm very glad you tell me that. But you know, uh, we are coming from Venice Festival, and what I noticed it, it was that a kind of how grateful was the audience just for the fact that we were making a movie mm. in these moments of pandemia. Mm. That uh, I mean, since the very first day, we just go straight away to the studio just to start shooting uh, without thinking in other, mm -hmm. in other things, just, just to make a new movie. Mm -hmm. um, well, I made it, um, and, I, and I hope that also, uh, Tilda, because I needed to do. Uh, but also, for the first time, I, I got the feeling that how grateful the audience was. It was like telling, I mean, you are making movies, and we want to see movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in this moment, it's, in, it's very important, I mean, to do it, more important than before. And, I, and also for that reason, I think it's very important that you have, that you have possible the, the, the New York Film Festival, I mean, in driving or whatever, in, in, any, in any way, but possible. Because, um, I mean, we, we shouldn't forget cinema and also to go to the cinema, which is very, very important. I think it's clear to most people that of all the things that we've missed, cinema is, a, you know, the, the thing that people have, have missed almost more than anything. Because, I mean, the wonderful thing about technology is that we can talk to our loved ones on our phones, but these phones, these screens are very small and we crave the big screen. And we, you don't have to be a major film nut like all of us and all of you sitting in the cars um, to really long for it. And I think one of the things that was so thrilling for us was to prove to ourselves and via this one image being sent out across the airwaves that you know this is not gonna change. There's so much that's changing now, but the idea of cinema being truly nourishing and truly something that we're gonna go through hell and high water to find, you know, get in your car and go to a drive-in. It's not exactly much harm to do that. It's a beautiful, beautiful, endless thing. And uh, it's really good in times of revolution to figure out the things that are not going away. And as far as I'm concerned, cinema is going nowhere. In fact, it, we can only benefit from all these inventions. I wonder next year or whenever it is that it is possible for us to fly, to be all together, Eugene, with you on a stage. Maybe we'll miss seeing Pedro's books or my cushions or dogs, or maybe we'll, you know, this is an expansive thing that, uh, that we need to be really grateful for. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's just never going anywhere, cinema. So we made a little film, very little, and we made, but we made it in pretty much exactly the way I think you'd agree, Pedro, we would have made it a few months before. It was business as usual. We just made the film. And, uh, and it was so um, healthy for us 
to work, to just make. Oh, I say wealthy instead of healthy. I always confuse. Both, both. You know, wealth has got nothing to do with money. <laughs> it was, it's, it's both, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, we're going to dig in in a moment into the film and how you made it and, and more about it. Um, but first, uh, Pedro, you mentioned this just a moment ago. You two were in Venice just recently presenting the film for the first time. Uh, and and able to watch it, you, you have you had an experience that a lot of us haven't had, and that is walking yeah, into a cinema to watch a I movie know. on a big screen. Something that so much of us are craving. I haven't watched a movie on a big screen in many months um, yeah. with an audience. Tell us tell tell us a little bit more just about that experience of of presenting it to an audience and being back in a cinema. I think it was a kind of celebration because mm -hmm. I mean the 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 the, the audience star clubbing. I mean, when um, this is the first time when we went, I mean, when we just arrived to the cinema, and it was a way of telling we love you, and uh, and also, I mean, we love that you are doing what you do. But, um, but uh, you know, it was, I mean, it was a demonstration that the, the, que las emociones que provoca una película, si son compartidas, for me, as a director, and also as a, a film goer, it, going into a theatre to watch a film is so important. Why? Because you have to get dressed up, you go out on the street, don't you? You choose which film you're going to see as you're walking down the street and you're interacting with people. And then you go into this, this dark place, this space where you're going to watch the film, and you're sitting there with other people in the darkness, people you don't know at all and you're watching them and you're sharing that experience and you feel the same feelings that they get. It could be fear, it could be excitement, it could be joy or it could be laughter, but it's a shared experience. And that's what makes it so unique, I think, seeing a film for me as a director, for a director and also as a film going. Es que después de la pandemia, los hogares se han convertido... Yeah, after the, the, the pandemic is over, um, and the pandemic has all been about watching films at home, haven't we? And home, it's been a confinement. We've been secluded at home. That's completely opposite to going to see a film at, at, in a theatre. Cinema is about adventure, isn't it? And it's so important that once it's all over, that filmgoers have to react. Uh, they need to go out because the danger is that we will end up staying at home, seeing fiction on a TV screen, and it's not the adventure. So, thank you. Let me switch gears and let's talk about let's talk about Jean Cocteau. Let's talk about. Um, this film and sort of where it came from. So for each of you, Pedro, I'll start with you and then Tilda, I'll ask you the same question, really. Um, I would love to know for each of you, if you remember where and when you first saw or experienced this play or where, what, what, what uh, maybe Pedro, for you, uh, you've referenced this play before, you've talked about it. Um, do you remember when you were introduced, not so much to Jean Cocteau, but to Jean Cocteau's play, The Human Voice? Well, I had never seen the play. I knew I knew the text via um, the blessed vessels of Roberto Rossellini and uh, and Anna Magnani, um, so I knew it as a piece of cinema, but very a very faith as I understand it a very faithful adaptation of of Cocteau's play, and then since then I'd seen uh, Ingrid Bergman's uh, interpretation and snatches of various others. I knew of it and I knew the opera, I mean, I knew it as a song. It was for me like, a, like the lyrics of a song that I'd heard covered over and over. Um, and I knew when, when Pedro approached me with it that 
he was approaching me with a, a classic text that would inevitably be a Pedro film. So it was a, a piece of material that he was going to use. And I was also aware, because um, I remember reading that he had uh, referenced it originally in Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and that it had been, a, a, again, a strand of a song that had kind of been appearing in his work for many years. So I was so thrilled as, a, as an Almodovar superfan that he was going to go to this source material that he'd been looking at for so long and really kind of and, and, and nail it or, or to shine some kind of extra special light on it. So I was very excited about that. Uh, I saw also, I mean, the, 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 the two versions that Tilda mentioned, uh, the one by Rossellini with Aramagnani, and other one uh, taped, because it was like theater taped, by Ted Koshev with Ingrid Berman in Broadway. And, uh, and I, I knew that also Sofia Loren did a version, and Simone Signoret, you know, uh, I, I mean, the first time that I, that, I, that I saw the Rossellini piece, it was in the 80s, early 80s. And uh, I was very, very, like, obsessed with Aramagnani because Aramagnani, for me, was, I mean, I mean for, is in, like, the, the essence of Mediterranean actresses, of warm actresses, uh, and represent my ideal uh, of, of actress. And um, so, just a few years, uh, I introduced a small part of the human voice in the Law of Desire. When Carmen Maura is doing the piece, um, I mean, it was just something very abstract. Uh, but it was only a, a small sequence. And uh, still, I was obsessed with the, with the, with the text. And, uh, and then I tried to make a movie with Carmen Maura, an entire movie about the Cocteau uh, play. But, you know, Cocteau play is like 20-something minutes. Uh, so I needed, I needed an hour and a half, at least, mm -hmm. to make a long feature. So I said, well, well I'm, I have to write one hour more. So when I start writing, then, I mean, then, you know, uh, Cocteau disappeared, the, the, the conversation by telephone disappeared too, and, and then I, what I wrote without really realizing it was an excusable comedy. So, I mean, they, that the only, only key from Cocteau that there is a woman, uh, an abandoned woman, with a baggage of the men mm -hmm. that, that abandoned her, and in that case, I didn't put a dog that is also very important in the cocktail place. So, I mean, uh, I never get really to adapt the real cocktail because now when two years ago, I tried to make a, a, a now as let's say serious adaptation of the of cocktail's words, then, then when I start, I mean, reading again, again, and with my age, I mean, this moment, uh, the words of Cocteau, then I found that, that they don't represent anymore uh, a contemporary woman. So, I mean, uh, with all my respect to Cocteau, uh, what, I, what I did is just to rewrite everything. I mean, the situation is the same. I mean, I was, like, like you say in the credits of the movie, that is freely inspired by Cocteau. Uh, because, for example, 
tilde is not if I if I wanted to make the the, the old version, I mean tilde is like the opposite of that character. But fortunately she is the perfect actress for this contemporary version of these women. Tilda, do you remember the first conversation you had with Pedro about about this uh, about this character and about participating or collaborating on this film? Um, how did this? Tell me about the early an early conversation you had, uh, maybe picking up on something he was just saying. It's uh, it's strange. I can't really remember much of the conversation itself. We met in Madrid to when. I'd, he'd already in, invited me to to play with him on this, and I, of course, instantly said yes. Where, when I'm coming, and I went to to Madrid, and we started to talk about it. Um, what I can remember was this sense of uh, unspoken agreement. I don't, I can't, I can't really uh, explain how or why. Uh, maybe Pedro will remember it differently, but it just felt as if the the spirit, the sort of atmosphere of the piece, because of what he'd done with the adaptation, because the, he because it is an Almodovar film, it is inspired by this music, by this theme from Cocteau, but it is very much an Almodovar environment and very much an Almodovar woman, I would say. There was a set for me. There was a sense of agreement about the atmosphere of of all of it. And so we started to go through the text very specifically. I can't remember being surprised by anything because I know Pedro's work so well. And it is extraordinary. We've met several times over the years in a very, I've always been in a, in a fanboy situation. And in fact, I think the last time that we'd been together was at the Lincoln Center for the great anniversary moment for, for, of, of the Film Society and, and of, of Lincoln Center. And, and I said, as I always do, if I have the nerve, Pedro, can we do something together? And I would always say to him, I can be mute, you know, I don't, because I don't speak Spanish, or I can learn Spanish, one or the other, but you know, let's, let's figure it out. So I was very much aware that it was extremely unlikely that he would ever ask me to play, because I didn't feel um, as he says, uh, uh, kind of a, an appropriate woman for his world. But he wrote something that, that I could imagine myself stepping into. And so there was this very organic feeling of harmony from the very beginning. Everything we talked about, we just sort of, we just got into the groove. and and. Um, and we just read it several times over several meetings. We just read it through and through and through and through. And the last time that I saw him was in March, just before lockdown. And, uh, and we were going to shoot in, I think, April, Pedro, you remind me, I think we were going to shoot really very soon. And yeah, then there was, was this the first wait. time to shoot, but it, yeah. we were interrupted. But yeah, the, we were going to shoot in April. Um, and there was a millisecond when we wondered whether it was going to be possible, but quite quickly, this sort of sense of momentum and of agreement just rolled us on. And we just said, okay, well, we'll just do it. We'll just do it in July. And, and, 
and dared ourselves to do it. And, and so we did. So I can't really remember any specific, as it were, negotiation. We just felt in agreement and in harmony from the very beginning. But I think that had something to do with two things. One, that I'm such a super fan of Pedro's and I love his, the world of his work so much and I, and I am quite familiar with it. And secondly, the script that he wrote was so um, comprehensive. It was, it was very clear where it fitted in to his general uh, oeuvre. And so it was quite, under, quite easy for me to understand it. Well, I remember, I mean, after just uh, Asher uh, to make the movie, uh, the first time that we met at, at my office in El Deseo, um, and, uh, and we start, because, you know, at the beginning, it's so, I mean, it's not difficult. You are, I mean, like, you have to start working immediately, because if not, I mean, it's what in Spain we call romper el hielo. Break the ice. Yeah, because if not, you know, I mean, I respect her so much. She respects me so much. Then, then we are like, dando vueltas, pero sin realmente abordar el tema. Right from day one, the day that Tilda came to the office to see me, we just sat down to work and we started to read the script. Y de esa lectura yo ya saqué muchas conclusiones. And I reached a lot of conclusions just from that first reading. First thing, my first conclusion was just how well Tilda really understood the text, and not just the text, but what was there in between the lines in that text. And also, when, when I explained to Tilda the content of the text that we've been reading, the, the sentences, what they meant, the intent behind them, and the different ways that she could actually act out those sentences, actually, I was, I was so surprised, very pleasantly surprised, uh, about the fact that we just understood each other right from the start, right from that first reading. And that was actually quite a surprise because it doesn't always work like that, even with Spanish actors and, and actresses. There is always this period of adaptation, but that wasn't the case with Silta. And also, I, and this is part of the, the organic flow to things that, that was absolutely wonderful. I would say that one of the key things about the performance that Tilda gave, and something that I personally feel so proud of, is her blind faith in me. She had absolute blind faith in me. And that is something that when it happens, it gives uh, the director much more strength, more power, because it actually enhances the talent you have when you're, when you're standing there directing somebody who has that, who believes blindly in you. Um, well, also since the beginning, it was very clear for me that, uh, I mean, we understood as director and actress, but also we have many things in common. I mean, movies that we love, uh, people that we also are very interested. That also, I mean, I mean, I, I, I met her several times, always in big events, uh, ceremony awards, or like New York Film Festival. Um, and I always felt very, very close to her. But, um, but, you know, this is not an enough deep knowledge of someone. So it was fantastic to discover that also we could be eating and talking about so many things and so many books, movies, author, people, and that and also there is a kind of sense of humor that uh, is very alike. I don't, I mean, I'm Spanish, she's Scottish, but um, we are condemned to be friends because we have many things in common. 
Condemned to be friends. I love it. Condemned to be friends. Well, this is my English, which is, you know. <laughs> that's a fantastic, that's a title for our joint biography. <laughs> Condemned to be friends. It's beautiful. There was a very beautiful moment, um, which was started as a joke, but I actually think it was kind of gorgeous. There was a moment when, you know, it's true what Pedro says about blind faith. And frankly, why wouldn't I have blind faith in Pedro? Um, even the idea of him placing me in his frame, I thought, that's crazy, but I'll go with it. If he wants it, I'll do it. But um, there was a moment when we were talking about a moment of high passion. And he said, oh, high passion, uh -huh. passion. And he said something like, you said something like, well, you know, you may not understand this because you come from the North and it may not be in your culture. You know, it's in our culture in Spanish. And I said, again, semi-joking as a kind of flick. I said, Pedro, my culture is cinema. And <laughs> he went, wow. <laughs> it was the fantastic condemned to be friends. So, uh, you know, after that, you stopped talking about how um, pale I was or how northern I was. You, 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 and then we just, you would say something like, Remember the moment at the end of La Notte when Jean Moreau is reading the, the, the letter. And I, okay. <laughs> well, that's our language. Sí, sí, absolutamente. Absolutely. Uh, for this, so, um, no, but I'm still surprised because, you know, also working in, in Spanish, that immediate chemistry that it was between you and I, that is completely exceptional. Uh, when it, and it doesn't happen all the time. I mean, to, to, with me, I mean, it happens with Penelope, it happens with Carmen Maura, it happens sometimes with Antonio Banderas, but it's not the regular thing. You can work also without having this kind of chemistry, mm. doing your work, mm. but when that chemistry exists, really that is the reason why everything became so fluent and, and organic uh, because uh, anyway we were very lucky we I mean yeah. said at the beginning that we had the problem of the pandemia but once we start uh, shooting it was like a blessed shooting and that was that was also that we were very lucky yeah very lucky very lucky so, so let, thank you. Let me switch gears. Um, let me, Pedro, let me ask you a question about um, the design of the film, the, the frame that we're looking at in this film. And let me understand, let me ask you to help me understand um, some of the early ideas you had for um, the setting for this film and also the way you would film that setting. Um, maybe you could. Uh, sort of elaborate on some of your early ideas and were they were they subverted by the realities of shooting in a pandemic or were there were some of the the the, the frames that you set up for this story and the staging of it um, were they pre-pandemic no fue exactamente según lo había pensado antes de la pandemia no it was all exactly as i'd imagined before the pandemic arrived. But actually, after the pandemic, um, it turned out to be a bit of a metaphor. It was uh, about the lockdown, really, wasn't it? It was about seclusion, because you have this woman who is 
living that secluded, seclusion. She's almost in prison, isn't she? And it turned out, just by pure coincidence, to be a metaphor of the lockdown in, in the pandemic. Uh, but, but for me, uh, really, um, and th this is something that I would say that reality often slips in through the cracks of what you're doing. But really, right from the start, the, the film turned out to be just the way I'd, I'd imagined it before that. Uh, it was all about a, a way of narrating the story that was going to be far from realism, far from naturalism. It was really, for me, a, a mix of the essence of theatre with the essence of cinema. And I'll explain. Eh, lo único real que te sirve de guía al espectador es la voz de Tilda. Really, the only real element in the, the film, which is what guides the, the film goes, people watching it through the film, is Tilda's voice. Digamos que el record, la continuidad, la mantiene exclusivamente la voz de Tilda. The continuity element of the film is really solely and exclusively through Tilda's voice. What, what I was very keen to, to do here was to show the fact that this is a play And, and the setting that I, that I actually built for it, it, more or less real in what you could see, but I was very keen, as I said, for Tilda to actually go out of the setting, out of the, the scenery, to leave it behind, to show where we were doing the filming, the fact that it was a sound studio, to show the, the breadth of space that there was there around, to show the backside of the scenery that, that we had built for, for the film. And, and I think now that all of that really did help to show her, the woman, alone, a woman who was left abandoned in that area. It, she was almost in this ghostly setting. She was almost a ghost herself. I really wanted to show the scenery, the sets that we made, but at the same time I was showing the innards, the very innards of, of the way we were filming. And I found it so, it such fun to use something that I think is really ugly, but we see all the time those chroma green screens that you see and all the making of. Uh, films. It made me feel you know, really great. It was wonderful to be able to have some of the monologue be spoken in front of that, those green screens. It was almost an operatic staging that came about. And the way that Tilda, the, the, the character, is talking about her fantasy. She talks about those tempting knives and how she might want to hurt, uh, want to have wanted to hurt her, her lover. The fact that I could use that, that technique there, that um, cinematographic technique, and use it and build it into my story and build it into the, to the character. I wonder, I wonder, um, Tilda, building on that, to what extent, well, I was thinking about two things as Pedro was talking. I was thinking about, on the one hand, to what extent you were thinking about this character's presence in this world between cinema and theater yeah. on the one hand. Yeah. And then I was thinking also about um, um, how you might've thought about this character prior to the pandemic and then coming out of it um, and, and your, how you might have connected with this character differently because of that experience. Two different questions, but those are two things I was two thinking about. Two great different questions. Uh, the, first, um, the first question uh, is, is very rich one because the whole, one of the things that really fascinated me when I first saw the Rossellini film, um, I mean, the Rossellini film, I want to say, was 48, I think. I think, I think. Um, and thinking about, thinking about the telephone, what the telephone meant, what the telephone means. I mean, what the telephone means for all of us, but what the telephone, um, meaning that you can't see like we can, 
meaning that you can only hear someone's voice. What a rich uh, territory that is for the kind of the twins of sincerity and deception. The whole idea of being able to dissemble on the phone. And this predicament that this woman's in of trying to hold on to her dignity. She knows she's been left. She knows that she has to go through these few painful steps, the, you know, getting rid of the, get, getting the baggage delivered and reaching some kind of dignified goodbye. These are her, this is her challenge. And she has to somehow get through that without completely falling apart. And this tension between wanting to tell him everything and show him her pain and um, create a complete fabrication and lie, basically. And the fact that she can do it on the telephone. I mean, that's, I'm talking about the Cocteau text now. Um, and so that was an, an original sort of interest for me because I'm so interested in, in the idea of, of inarticulacy and articulacy and the way in which, you know, and the idea of us all being able to ex understand each other or actually be able to explain ourselves to each other is still a complete mystery to me. So this text is about that dance and it is a theatre, it is a performance. She is an actress and she is a, she's performing. This is a performance. So the first I don't know what, I want to say 60% or at least of the text is kind of pure fabrication and, and a kind of pose. And one of the things that we played with in the first utterances that she makes to him, because the first section of, of uh, Pedro's script is silent. And that is her sincerely. That is her sincerely buying a, a, an axe and sincerely... Uh, cutting it up and sincerely being furious and smashing a glass and all of that and sincerely taking pills. But the second she starts to talk to, to him, she moves into a kind of fiction. And at the very beginning, we played with a kind of, frankly, overacting, a, a sense of real theatrical actressy drama, which you can tell she gets a bit sick of quite quickly. <laughs> You'd almost see the vomit rising in her throat. Um, she thinks she's overdone it. And she's, but she's trying so hard not to tell the truth. And yet she can't resist. It, you know, she, she has to start telling him about her pain. And I personally find that incredibly moving. The feeling of, you know, in a predicament like that, which frankly most of us have been through uh, if we've lived to, you know, 21 and above, that feeling of, knowing that you're in a trope, a, a cliche. You know, everybody who's been abandoned is, is already in a soap opera set. You know, it's, it's embarrassing how one plays out these tropes. And, and she's got this whole dance going between wanting to be authentic and truthful and make a real connection with him and, and also trying to sort of fake it and he, of course, is clearly such a disappointment. I mean, he keeps saying the wrong thing. She's throwing open her heart and spilling her guts. And all he cares about is whether she's mentioned his, him by name to the therapist or, you know, the, you know she, shouldn't, she shouldn't talk about price because it's not good taste. And she 
she, you can feel that too. You can feel that she's in the middle of this massive meltdown thinking, he's not worth it. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a complete dweeb. All of that, all of that tension is made possible because we're dealing with a telephone call and not a FaceTime either. Because with a FaceTime, one of the things, reasons I love FaceTime is that you can't hide. You know, you really do see how somebody is. But she, um, that whole twist and turn on sincerity and deception uh, is, you know, is one of the things that I think makes it a really rich text. And, and, and of course, also twiddles between the, the vulnerability and openness of cinema and uh, the possibility of fakery uh, in theater. Muy bien. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> no, esto era algo que a mí me atraía mucho del personaje. Yes, I think, I think está... what you were saying, that was what really attracted me to the character her, herself. It, and that was in the original Cocteau text, wasn't it? That the fact this sort of, I call it a sentimental epic nature of her feelings, uh, these heightened feelings, the heightened, exaggerated emotions uh, that the character has. I mean, I, I liken it really to a musical style that's very popular in, in our culture, at least the bolero. Uh, perhaps it's something similar to the torch song in, in the States. Uh, that's what I would say it was like. This sort of exaggerated way of living your emotions, the ups and downs, the twing throwing from one extreme to the other. You're absolutely blissfully happy at one point, but then in the next moment, you're, you're really under the weather and you're feeling dreadful. Or this fact that you really want to, to really tell someone off, you want to reproach them. Um, but then at the same time, you want to shout, but you don't want to shout as well. This vulnerability that you have at one point, and when you really want to feel and show that you're very sure of yourself in the character. And all of that was in Cocteau's original text, uh, but it needed an actress who, was sufficiently versatile to be able to put that on screen. And Tilda had that. Uh, she's, uh, she's, because she plays a character who's not really in control of herself at all. A character whose tone is constantly changing uh, in everything that she says, uh, in each line. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's almost a theatrical, a theatrical staging. As I said, it's like, I call it the sentimental epic nature of the text. Um, and Matilda, yourself, as I mentioned just before, you described it very well when you talked about uh, Anna Magnani's uh, playing as being voluptuously emotional, I think was the, the exact words you said. Uh, and so for me, it, it was so interesting to see that Tilda actually had this variety of registers, the diverse registers that we, you needed, because it was key, because even in one single paragraph, um, that you have to change the register that you're using as you're speaking. And that is very difficult. Perhaps it's easier for us in Spanish because Spanish is a language that perhaps isn't such a straight line language. We modulate the tone as we speak. And in English, I think it was, it's more difficult to do. But Tilda just did it so well. She did it perfectly. I, I know we're running um, low on time. So I'm just going to ask one last question, uh, Pedro and Tilda. And I want to thank you for spending time with us to talk about this uh, movie and um, your collaboration together. But I want to switch gears and just as we wrap up, uh, we talked about cinema, we talked about movies at the beginning of this conversation and, you know, we're all um, watching and experiencing cinema differently right now. Um, I'd love to know just a little bit more about how you are, you are each experiencing cinema, experiencing movies differently, but also how you're thinking about 
uh, movies and cinema and the role they play in, in each of your lives, um, perhaps differently now? Nothing has really changed about the way I think uh, of the cinema, the, of what I, what I feel about cinema, the role it in, in my life. In fact, I think what's happened with the pandemic has actually heightened the role it has. It, it's made my feeling about cinema much more categorical um, because cinema, films are my life. Uh, it's a, film, cinema is the most important thing that's ever happened to me. And I live solely and exclusively for the cinema. Uh, I'm not saying everybody sh should live like that, but that's my case. And what's happened in lockdown is that we've been forced to sit down in front of a small screen, well, small, a TV screen. I mean, my, my screen's huge, but still, it's a small screen, and we've had to watch what we've seen there. And I, it's made me come to almost hate all of the material, all of the content that I've seen on TV over this time in lockdown, this series, the documentaries, the news, the films, whatever. I mean, if, if my life was going to be, from now on, only watching uh, fiction on screen, well, that would actually sink me into pure despair. Um, really, I think, more than ever, we need to make sure that people watch fiction. It's essential that we sit in the cinema. And it's true that what happened during lockdown is that one of the biggest comforts that people had was to be able to sit down in front of the TV screen and, and they were swallowing three to four hours of fiction um, every day. And that did save people from the tedium, the anxiety and the boredom of lockdown. So now is the time after the pandemic for us to really to explain to people, I mean, how important it is for us to have new fiction. Uh, fiction it makes us, it makes our lives easier to live. And when I say fiction, I mean culture in general, because if you think of watching something on TV, people need to understand that it's not just the story they're watching. Someone's had to put in the lighting for the scenery. Someone's had to think up the idea. Someone's had to write the text, the script. All of that is culture. And certainly here in Spain, I think we're struggling to build up a culture in politics, a political culture, the need to protect our fiction. And I think now there's a much greater need for us to have the cinema back. And I want to go back to the cinema. I'm desperate to get back to that ritual more than ever before of going to the cinema, to the theater, to see films. Because what's happening now is that the distributors, they're not distributing the films, they're not showing the films on screen. I know it's really complex. I know it's not like the way we, we lived before. It's all very odd, isn't it? And it's all very negative now for the cinema. And I, I wouldn't like us to have to live like this. But it's important to say that also the big companies, the majors, they're really sort of economizing on what films they're showing and what distributing it. Essentially, they're not showing them to people. And it would really encourage people to get back to, to going to see film if in the rest of the world we could see all of those big films that are not being distributed. Certainly in Spain, I know that people have just got used to watching fiction on their TV screen. And that's very, very dangerous. I think when I remember the beginning of the whole lockdown experience, and I, and I imagine this was similar for most people, it was, if, it was as if all the stories stopped. It was as if we couldn't imagine how this whole script, this plot, was going to play out. Um, we'd all seen a number of dystopian films um, and we had all sorts of fantasies and we were very grateful for the fact that 
there weren't flesh-eating zombies walking down our streets. But still, we ha had a sort of failure of imagination about how this whole story is going to develop. And that's still the case. We, our imaginations have been expanded by this. We don't have the stories in real, in real life. We need those stories so badly. Uh, Jean Cocteau talked about myth over history. You know, we need myths, we need narrative. And as Pedro says, we need fiction. And I remember at the very beginning of lockdown um, in this house, uh, in a sort of emergency hunkering nourishment mode, we immediately sought out those films that find us, find that we find so health giving. And we went to Hitchcock and we went to Almodovar, I will say, and we went to um, the, the films of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. And I picked up for the second time in my life, the massive two-part biography, autobiography of Michael Powell. And I went through it like a sort of text, like a holy text during the first few weeks of lockdown. And it was such, such a good thing that I did that because the story of the development of the cinema of Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger is kind of the story of the development of the cinema itself. Because he's born in 1905 and he went to, to work uh, with Rex Ingrams in the Victorine cinemas in the south of France. It's about a cinema which deals with the massive, massive world-shaking crisis of the coming of sound. All these studios went bust, people went out of work, they, were, it was, they thought cinema was completely unsalvageable, silent cinema. Well, hey presto, what happened? Cinema evolved. And then there was the coming of color, also massive crisis, total revolution. Once again, cinema expanded, cinema evolved. Then came television, etc. Here we are again. We have another excuse or opportunity, let's say. I don't want to be judgmental about it, but it's an opportunity for people to panic about cinema and think cinema is over. You know, we only have these small screens. We we're going to end up having them on our wrists only. I don't buy it for one minute. We are never going to stop wanting to go to the cinema. And I believe that cinema will evolve. And the reason it will evolve is because there are nutters like us who are completely besotted with it. And we'll just find a way. Nutters like you all who are sitting in your cars looking at a massive screen. You're never gonna stop looking for a massive screen. You've gone to Queens to look at this now. It's just thrilling to me. I'm sorry to be sort of counter-programming this, but I find this opportunity so thrilling for cinema. And I have no idea how this plot is gonna play out, but I know for sure that, uh, that, that cinema lives on and, and, I'm, and I'm really excited about it. And in, in terms of our experience as filmmakers, in our own lives, we have proved to ourselves that we can go on making films. That's just such a blessing. And I am, I'm, not, I'm not scared at all. We'll just go on working. Pedro's working on his next film now. Um, I'm working on a number of uh, crazy adventures with, with wonderful people and I see no reason to really be scared. It's a, it's a reckoning and a lot of dead wood is gonna be cleared out, but that's never a bad thing. Yep, no, 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 I'm agreeing, I completely, I agree completely uh, with her. I mean, it seems that the cinema always was in danger and uh, it survived always. No, but it's true that, uh, that it's, it's cierto que las circunstancias son delicadas y, y sobre todo, 
creo que al tener un elemento sanitario because we have the L issue, I think that makes it very different. This particular crisis that, that cinema is going through right now, very different from previous ones. Um, there's more uncertainty surrounding the future of cinema, and I think the uncertainty itself is different. Uh, it makes it different to the other dangers uh, that cinema has faced in the past, because we're dealing with a virus, a virus that is out of control at the minute. Um, everyone keeps saying that, that we'll, we'll get through this sooner, and it, We'll, everything will go back to normal and we'll come out of this uh, being much better people in the future. I'm not so sure that everything's going to be, go back to being the same as before. And I'm not even so sure that we're going to actually come out of this as, as better people. But nevertheless, I, I am an optimist. I'm an actively um, energetic optimist. It's not just because of my job, but I believe we all need to be working on projects. We need to be writing. We need to be filming. We need to be doing things. And well, time will tell, reality will tell us when we have to stop doing all of that. It's true that we are much more exposed now uh, to the dangers uh, in an industry that's already had a lot of uncertainty in it itself. It's an uncertain world, I think. Uh, but I think it's just a sign of the times, isn't it? I want to thank, um, well, I think first of all, both of you for, um, as I said at the beginning, um, knowing that the two of you were collaborating this summer in this moment uh, was a flare of hope for a lot of us. Um, and so I wanna thank you for doing that and for sharing that work so immediately with us, um, but also for spending time today to talk about it, to talk about movies, to talk about your collaboration, to talk about life and everything we're going through because I know speaking personally, it brings, uh, it gives me a shot of hope uh, and a shot of optimism um, and it, you know, thank you for being part of the New York, New York Film Festival, the new New York Film Festival, uh, the 58th uh, for 2020. It really is uh, deeply meaningful to all of us at Lincoln Center to have you sharing it with us in this way. And we, um, we dream of the day when we're again together um, mm -hmm. in New York. But for this moment, Pedro and Tilda, just thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. Eugene. Very proud to be a part of it. Yes, yes. And I hope the next next year you have to be presencially uh, there. Uh, yes. Really, I mean, it's what well, this is the only pity that we cannot go to New York uh, to attend the, the screening of our movie. But also, really, thank you so much to invite us to be there. Yes, we're really, really thrilled to be a part of it. Thank you.